Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Mark chapter 9, continuing in our study of Mark's account of the life ministry of our Lord. And we're asking at each point, what does this tell us about Jesus? There's a lot of great things that we learn from the Gospels, but our focus in this study is very specific. What is Mark telling us at each and every point about Jesus? And we come to a portion of the text this morning that, to be honest, um, I find really challenging. Challenging not in the sense that um, I can't read it and understand what it means. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, but as we read it, and read it over and over again and consider its meaning, it really seems to be, it seems to present Jesus in a way that's completely out of character for Jesus. It doesn't present the Jesus that we expect to see. Um, And if you've been reading along, as I so encourage you to do, you'll know that already. If not, uh, it'll become evident as we read the text this morning. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in the 14th verse through verse 29. Uh, And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what were you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, do it, you deaf, dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. The boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, got up. And when he had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We do want to learn of our Lord. We do need, Lord, always always to learn more of Jesus. And so we ask you to help us to that end. Amen. So we have an encounter here between Jesus and um, a large crowd in general, but most specifically a man whose son is demon-possessed. Horribly demon-possessed. And the, um, much of the event is, you know, your basic Jesus stuff. Jesus meets a guy with a demon-possessed child, casts a demon out, we're good. right? Typical Jesus But there's an exchange there that I think really presents us with a challenge if if, if we're sensitive to it all. You know, when you talk to people about Jesus, and I don't mean in a, like, confrontational, evangelical approach. Not like, you know, if you made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, not that approach. But if in just a conversation, like, you know, somebody's talking about 
you know, the ten greatest leaders in the history of humanity. Or if, if the person of Jesus just makes his way somehow in the conversation, and you're just talking about Jesus the man, I think you find most people are very favorably inclined. Um, if you separate Jesus from the Jesus of Christianity, if you separate him from the church, if you speak about his love, his compassion, his mercy, his empathy for people, the beauty of his teaching, his love, the response is almost always favorable. Um, Hindus, Buddhists, people like Gandhi. Gandhi said, I tried, but I cannot separate the person of Christ from the other great teachers of mankind. That's pretty high praise from, from Gandhi. Uh, Muhammad spoke very highly of him. Majority of Americans in a survey that was taken in 2020, um, a majority said that Jesus is a great teacher. The same majority said he's not God. So as long as you leave, you know, the theology out, as long as you believe that deity stuff out, as long as you, you know, s stick to just the good stuff about Jesus, most people are favorably inclined. And that, I think, we would find in a great many Christians today. A lot of Christians today have that same kind of perspective. Um, I'm looking forward to this all morning, this, this moment, just to see faces. Um, one author uh, likened a good bit of the church today. He called them doobie brother Christians. Now I'm looking at faces and seeing how many are going, I know exactly what he means, and how many are going, I have no idea what he means by that at all, right? Just by show of hands, how many know where this is going? Few of us, few of us. You're not going to raise your hand? Doobie brother? Scott just doesn't want to admit it. Scott doesn't want to admit it, right? You all know it. You all know it, right? Those of you who know it, help me. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. That is as far as I'm going to go. I'm going to stop right there. But you know, this, who doesn't know the song? We all know the song, right? You don't know? Oh, you liar. We all, we all know that concept that Jesus is great because Jesus is cool. Right? We especially love it when he confronts the religious leaders. Oh, yeah. That's where that line comes from, right? Um, there was actually a lot of debate. I am old enough to remember it. Uh, when that song came out, if it actually was a gospel song or not, were in fact the Doobie Brothers. And yes, the name comes from the fact they consumed so much weed. That's why they were called that, right? They gave that name to themselves, by the way. Yeah, uh, Tom Johnson, who was the lead singer at the time, said this. The funny thing about that song, we weren't anti-religious, we weren't anything. Yeah. We were just musicians out playing a gig, and we didn't think about that kind of stuff very often. We'd be playing out there, we'd be playing that song, and these one wares yeah, that puts it in time, doesn't it? Jesus Revolution, yeah, that's these radical believers. These one-wayers who would be at the show, they would run up to the stage with their fingers pointed straight up. At first, we didn't get it. So they're singing the song, Jesus is all right. A bunch of new Christians are going like this, and they don't know what it means, right? He went on to say, we finally figured out, oh, that's what's going on. We'd play that song, and they would go nuts. They would throw scriptures on the stage. And then he said this. Little did they know they were trying to enlist the support of the wrong people. Song meant nothing to them 
other than this Jesus guy was cool. And by the way, Jesus is cool. He had to be. You don't draw those kind of crowds by being, you know, an uptight religious type. There were those out there, and they weren't drawing these crowds. No, Jesus drew the people that he did because of the attractiveness of his message and who he was. And that's true. His ministry was characterized by love and compassion and empathy and caring and no tolerance for religious types. At least not the types he encountered. And then we come to this passage, and Jesus suddenly appears short-tempered, a little curt, wholly lacking in empathy, insensitive. He's talking with this man, and all, all he apparently has to say about the man is how lousy his faith is, how small his faith is, even while the child is having a demonically induced seizure right there, and he's doing it in front of a crowd. That, that just doesn't have the, the ring of, of the Jesus that, that I love, right? So I look at this, and I go, what's going on here, Lord? Let's take a look at what actually happened, what is actually said, and then ask that question, what does it tell us about Jesus? And then we can ask what it tells us about, about us. So first, what happened? What's actually said and done? Well, it starts with Jesus and the disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And by the timeline here, it's pretty crunched. We say the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It's less than 2,000 feet high, and the village at the base is at 400 feet. So you've got like 1,500 feet they have to come down. It's not very far. So this is a, a short timeline. He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, had that incredible experience. You know, his, his form was changed. The whole encounter with the disciples on the way down, and he gets to the base of the mountain, very short trip, and he's met by this really large crowd, okay? Um, so far, so good. Typical Jesus moment. And the crowd, it has included some scribes, and the scribes are arguing with the disciples. Nothing new there. Um, verse 15, the crowd sees Jesus, and they run to him, and they're amazed. This is like the normative word for being amazed with, with an intensifier at the beginning. So they were like extra amazed, right? Extra amazed. Now, we're not told why. Um, some have suggested that because of the nature of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration and the parallel between that and Moses' experience on the mountain, that there was quite possibly, and it's entirely reasonable to suggest, something of a glow left about Jesus' persona. Of course, it would have been even more so in his case, because in the case of Moses, the glow was kind of a borrowed glow, whereas in Jesus, it, the owner, right? So it's entirely likely there was something about that that was still evident. The crowd may have noticed that. Um, but they run to him and they greet him. Jesus, in verse 16, inquires about the issue being debated, which tells us that it was loud enough, this confrontation was loud enough, that they heard it while they were yet approaching. So you got a large crowd of people, somewhere in the crowd, there's arguments going on, and Jesus hears it from a distance, right? And he learns from the man who speaks up in verse 17 that his son is demon-possessed, he has seizures, causing him to foam at the mouth, clenching of the jaw, 
rigidity of his entire body. You know, some have asked, would this just be an example of where somebody maybe was just like epileptic and they didn't have a way to describe it? Well, you could argue that in some cases, but in this case, Jesus makes specific reference to the demon possessing him. So we would have to say, this is just flat out. There may have been other things as well. There may have been medical issues as well. But this kid's demon possessed. Simple as that. The father says in verse 18, I brought him to you. I asked your disciples to cast the demon out, and they could not. And now we come to the problem. Jesus' response in verse, seven, verse 19. He answered and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. That's a pretty fair rebuke. Unbeliever. Unbelieving people. How long will I endure you? Bring him to me. Raises some questions. First of all, who exactly is Jesus talking to when he says, you unbelieving generation? Uh, it could have been the dad. could have been the disciples. could have been the whole crowd, right? Um, some have suggested all three, and there's reasonable arguments to be made. I think the key is in that phrase, oh, unbelieving generation. He's just like thinking out loud about the whole group, even including his disciples. This is a broad brush for everybody, but most especially for the father. The boy is brought before Jesus, and a seizure follows immediately. Jesus asked the boy's father about the episodes. He said, how long has this been happening? And the child's having a seizure right in front of him. Again, it's, just, it's really hard for me to visualize, because this is not the Jesus I know. This poor child's having a horrific seizure, and Jesus doesn't want to talk about it. And he asked him, how long has this been going on? I want you to know one thing about that. It's a time question. How long has this been happening? It's happened ever since he was a child. Father goes on to answer more, more information than that. He says, um, he, this happens real often. He falls in the fire. He falls in the water. It tries to destroy him. And then the father says, if you can do anything, have pity on us. Heal him. Take the demon out. You know, a lot of times when people say things or ask things, the real message isn't in what they say. It's what's behind what they say. And there are some implications in this man's word that, that we've all probably indulged in um, more than once. He said, if you can. Jesus, if you're capable. That sounds an awful lot like what was said to Jesus on the cross. Since you're the Son of God, prove it. If you can... By coming down. Yes, it's a request, but it's a request worded as a challenge to his capacities, which is a challenge to his identity. You, being Jesus, certainly have an opportunity to prove who you are by doing this now, if you can. It's a challenge, it's a challenge to his identity. And then he says, have pity on us. Do you care enough to do this? Again, the, the, the statement has its implications. It has its uh, implied accusation. Jesus, if you don't do this, and it's that word we talked about before, that word about, about emotion that's related to the spleen. If you don't have, have the spleen in you, if you don't have, the, you don't have the, the thing in your gut that makes you want to do this, well, then I guess it won't happen. So there are requests but the requests carry an implicit accusation. They're a challenge, and that is exactly what Jesus responds to. If 
you can, and that answer is singular. He's talking to the dad and just the dad. You want me to do this? This has been going on for 20 years. Here's what's implied in Jesus' words. This has been going on for, I say 20 years, we don't know how old the kid was. This has been going on ever since he was a child, and this is the, this is, you've done nothing about it yet? Now you come to me? Jesus had been ministering around Galilee for at least two years. Now I see you at my door? If you can, you have a role to play in this. Again, it sounds accusatory. It sounds insensitive. He adds, Jesus adds, all things are possible to the one who believes. It's not my ability that's in question, Jesus saying. It's your faith. If you have faith, this kid will get healed. Jesus responds to the man's first question by saying that it isn't Jesus' ability that's in question. He responds to the man's second statement by saying it isn't his compassion that's a factor in deliverance. It's the man's own faith. Both of these are said right as the, as the, as the child is suffering an episode right in front of everyone. Verse 24, the man's father responds his, by affirming both his faith and the smallness. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, Jesus, noting the crowd, casts the demon out and instructs it not to return. I guess that would maybe like a bonus for having been rebuked in the way that he was. Not only will I cast the demon out, I'll ensure this one can't come back. It's a very powerful exchange between the two. In verse 26, the boy goes into horrible convulsions, goes completely limp and is taken for dead. Verse 27, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him, restored to wholeness. So a lot of this is just your basic Jesus stuff. Healing the sick. Delivering people from demonic possession. Drawing people into faith. But a lot of it's hard to compute. The way Jesus deals with the poor man. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus with the disciples in private. Uh, they too have had a pretty rough experience. They have failed. They have failed. They asked Jesus why they couldn't drive the demon out. And his answer is, is a little more interesting than it looks at first. He says, well, this kind only comes out by prayer. And the reason I find that so very interesting is there's no reference to him praying. And you notice that. There's no point at which with the child in the middle of the convulsions, Jesus said, everybody stop, we're going to hold hands and pray here so we can you know, deal with this. No. There's no indication Jesus did any praying at that moment. So he tells the disciples, the problem is your prayer life. I would suggest Jesus is not talking about a moment of prayer and a moment of crisis, but rather a lifestyle of prayer. We tend to think of prayer as an event. For Jesus, it was a life. If you were praying constantly, if you were in prayer, as Jesus would say, I am in prayer. You could have handled this yourself. So what's the point in all this? I mean, are we just seeing Jesus as depressed because he's been really working a lot and hasn't had enough rest? Or is he a little angry because the message is not piercing the void? Um, something else going on. Well, I would focus very deliberately on what Jesus said when he was first confronted Back in verse 19, he answered and said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Jesus begins by singling out the issue, the problem. 
oh, unbelieving generation, and he says, I'm talking to y'all here, generation, the whole of the group, the whole of the race, humanity. Despite two years, he's still in Galilee where he has spent most of his ministry. They've all had plenty of opportunity to see his power. Two years later, they still struggle believing. That's Jesus' issue. And he ends it by calling for the boy. The boy is brought, and he's going to heal him. But in the middle, Jesus asked two critical questions, and that's what I want to focus on. Two critical questions. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I be present in your midst? And how long shall I put up with you? Which is to, to tolerate you, to lift you, literally to carry you in my arms, to carry the weight of your suffering the weight of your sin, the weight of your inadequacies, all the weight of all you've got. How long will I carry that? Um, the questions are both rhetorical and revelatory. I say they're rhetorical because there's nobody there that's going to answer either one of them. Nobody present has an answer to either one of these questions. In fact, in many ways, Jesus himself wasn't even sure. Now, we know he had a sense of his impending death. It's on, it's on the near horizon. But even he doesn't know the exact hour, right? It's a rhetorical question. How long will I be able to put, carry you? How long will I put up with you? And they're also revelatory because they offer us a magnificent insight into what Jesus was thinking. We get a window into Jesus' head. These are the kind of things he thought about. How long will I be with these people? How long will I carry these people? And it all revolves around the simple phrase, eos pote, which means until when? Until when? I know, I know an end is coming. I've got until then, and until the end comes, I'm completely here. But when the end comes, I'm not here at all. Now the Spirit will come. That's a different subject. They haven't even got there yet. So in Jesus' mind, he's still resolving this question, until when? Until when am I with you? How much time do I have? The fact of the matter is Jesus is bearing a burden precisely because he is capable and because he does care. And until I'm here, or as long as I'm here, I'll continue to carry you. The principal question is one of time. When does the clock run out for Jesus? He was conscious of that. How much time he had because it was limited. Have you ever thought about the reality, and I, this is one I just kind of roll around in my head, about what it was for Jesus to step from eternity where time, in effect, did not exist, into a humanity where time defines everything. To, to experience firsthand the restrictions of time. When in a pre-incarnate state, that wasn't even an issue for him. That must have been revelatory. How, when does the door, he asks himself, when does the door for me to minister to you when does that door come to a close and I can't do it anymore? And will you be ready when it happens? That's a burden he carried. It's not that Jesus is getting impatient or frustrated or angry. It's that he had an appreciation for time that they didn't. Even though as humanity, we, we live our entire existence in time, constrained by time. Yet he had a far greater appreciation of it. He understood the urgency of the hour. It's like this. Imagine, if you will, something important is happening and someone turns a kitchen timer. You know that tick, 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 tick? 
Imagine if you were some great important event and it was all keyed to that kitchen timer and you were the only one that could hear it. Everybody else knew it was there, but they couldn't hear it. And the time is ticking away and one after another, they begin to forget about it. And you alone are burdened with the constant tick, tick, tick of time. That's what Jesus felt. He alone truly could appreciate what the passing of time meant. We've seen in these last couple chapters how Jesus' focus is sharpening, working for more time with his disciples, teaching them with more immediacy. Now he confronts a desperate father whose son is horribly tormented. And the unbelief that he's seeing demonstrates to him that his message of faith hasn't sunk in. It's a desperation we see in his voice. People aren't getting the critical role, aren't understanding the critical role that their faith plays. And he manifests that in his response. You know, we asked, how does it speak to us? Well, it tells us about our Lord. He came to do a job. We're coming to that marvelous verse in the next chapter. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. There's a desperation in his voice as he knows that hour is drawing near. And his followers must be ready. There's a desperation here to do the work that must be done before the time is up. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, our Lord, God, the one who invented time, is now confronted by time. And he must finish his task before it's done. For us, I think the challenge is to come to terms with the reality of the expression, the time is short. I remember back when I was a, a new Christian going to church. We had an old saint in the church, grand old man, and he would say every Sunday, Jesus is coming soon. He'd stand up in church every single Sunday and say, Jesus is coming soon. Time is short. He'd say every now and then he'd add, the Lord told me to do that. All right, every Sunday. And I can remember as a new Christian and other old Christians a lot of you know what I'm talking about here. Other old Christians would say similar things. Time is short. Jesus is coming soon. And I always would think, yeah, that's because they're old. You know, what else do I got to think about, right? <laughs> Be honest. They're old. What else do I got to think about? And then I realized that wasn't it at all. Jesus got, just got done saying, this doesn't come out by prayer. Prayer, bringing people an understanding of the immediacy of time. That man was standing up and saying that because he prayed about it a lot. And out of his prayer came an understanding of the immediacy of the moment. He was starting to hear the tick, tick, tick. That as a young Christian who wasn't praying like I should be, I couldn't hear. The time we spend in prayer, that lifestyle of prayer, bringing to a place of, of listening to the Lord, that gives us an ear to hear that. We find the understanding of time in prayer. And I'm not, I don't think Jesus was telling the disciples they needed to pray so they'd have the power to cast out demons, which is what we would think. If you guys were just praying more, you'd have more power. You'd, boom. No, they needed to pray more so they'd have an understanding of the immediacy of the hour and the urgency of the hour, and that would empower them to deal with the situation. Jesus asked two questions. How long shall I be with you, and how long shall I put up with you? They were rhetorical. He didn't expect an answer. But they were revelatory because they show us how he was thinking and what he was feeling. 
We have a desperate need to get that perspective. We've been talking the last several weeks about that foundation layer of understanding, you know, Jesus' confrontation with Peter. When Peter said, you are the Christ, and Jesus said, that means I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. And Jesus said, oh, sorry, Peter, you got your Messiahship all messed up. Let me fix it for you. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of men. And that, and that thinking that Jesus talked about, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that thinking that Jesus talked about wasn't the process of our thinking, it was the foundation from which we think. Your assumptions, Peter, are wrong. Well, that's the kind of thinking that we're talking about this morning. We need to get a perspective on eternity based on its immediacy. And when we get that perspective, the immediacy of eternity, our, act, our thinking and then our actions will follow. That's what we need. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. And that's what Mark was showing us. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, it is a passage that at first, first blush does cause us to step back and go, man, Jesus is being kind of brutal with this guy. Confronting him about his unbelief and, and, and laying, the, laying the burden of responding this right back on the man. If you can, he said, That's, that confronts us and we start to think that maybe Jesus isn't the nice guy we thought he was. Well, actually, Lord, we acknowledge this morning that, yeah, Jesus is a great guy, but he's not just the nice guy we sometimes think he is. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And he came to give his life a ransom for many. And in that, Lord, there is more laid on us. Father, we know there's nothing we can do to affect our salvation. Jesus did everything, Lord. But as we embrace that salvation, Lord, we have to acknowledge, Father, that we get drawn into a relationship with our Lord that carries with it responsibilities, um, reasonable response, Father, part of that is an appreciation of the immediacy and the nearness of your son's return and the ordering of our lives in accord with that. Lord, that doesn't come to us naturally because we're the unbelieving generation. That's who we are. So, Father, you've given us the gift of prayer. And I pray, Father, that for each one of us, this passage of Scripture would mark a new phase in our prayer, Lord, that we would be deliberate each day, and all the things we pray about, the many needs we bring before you, all that, all that stuff. It's, we know we need to bring it before you, Lord. Your word tells us, make our requests be made known, Lord. Then in addition to that, we would add to that list of what we need. Father, give me an appreciation for the nearness of your return, the nearness of your kingdom, the nearness of eternity. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.